you may be seated. I, too, need uh, oxygen like Charlie Daniels, apparently. You know, human beings love competition, don't we? There is not another creature on earth that has a race or tries to figure out who can jump over the widest creek or who can pick up the heaviest rock. I mean, like, you might have a pack of hyenas and a pride of lions going at it for the gazelle that's laying on the ground, but that's just instinct, you know? But not human beings. Human beings, we want to know who it is that we're stronger than. We want to know who it is that we're faster than. We want to know who it is that might be a step ahead of us and what it is that we can do to get to where they are. What it is that we can do to catch up with them. I, I myself am a bit of a competitor, for those of you that know me well. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if it's fantasy football. It doesn't matter if it's throwing washers in a hole. It doesn't matter what it is, I want to win at it. As a matter of fact, if I'm honest with you, the fact that my team, that I had no, I did not play a single down in the game last night, and it really it bothers me a little bit more than I wish it did. My D group right now is in the process of having this three-month, 90-day weight loss challenge. And when we, when we started it, I looked at James Johnson and I said, James, I will go into the intensive care unit before I let you beat me. Not, uh, back in July, Aaron and I, we decided we, we, we'd really been wanting to do some whitewater kayaking, right? And uh, now, skill level, zilch, okay? Competency, zilch. But we decided that that's what we're going to do. And so he and I, one July, uh, the first week of July, jumped in my truck. We drove to Bryson City, North Carolina, and we're just going to go all in on this whitewater kayaking thing, right? And so we got this guide, and he's, like, giving us lessons and kind of showing us what to look out for and what to do. Now, remember, this is just a, couple, this is just a fun weekend among buddies, okay? Like, like, this is just a couple of guys going away, getting out of the office, doing something fun, letting the hair down a little bit, just a, a nice stroll down the river, right? We had done the whole thing. We, we got to the, the Tuckasegee River, class, got some class three rapids, you know, kind of thought we were a couple of bosses, all that kind of stuff. And we get in the truck and we're heading home and we're almost at the Mexican restaurant that we're going to stop and eat supper. And uh, I said, Aaron, I need to confess something to you. This whole weekend I've been keeping score. I've been trying to decide who was always willing to go down the rapid first. I've been keeping score on who flipped over the most amount of times. I've kept, I've kept score over who could roll their boat back up the most amount of times. And I know this was just supposed to be for fun, but I think I won. <laughs> and then Aaron speaks back and he says, well, I've been keeping score too. <laughs> And by my calculations, I think that I've won. But that's how the human mind works, isn't it? We're always in a competition, even if there's not a competition to be had. We can take our career. We can take our parenting. We can take our, our willingness to drive the nicest car or, or see how long we're willing to go in the worst car. And in our minds, we're constantly measuring ourselves by the other people that we know. That in our minds is this imaginary podium. 
And whether it's our parenting or it's our, our career or whatever phase of life you might think, as we think about this imaginary podium, we want to know that we're standing in first place holding the gold medal. In other words, we want to prove that we are the strongest. We want to prove that we are the most self-sufficient. We want to know that we are the most successful. But what happens is, is that is actually antithetical to the gospel. It is the anti-gospel for a man to look within himself and to see strength there. It is the anti-gospel for a woman to try to pick herself up by her bootstraps and press on. No, the gospel is for those who are weak. The gospel is for those who are weary. And so this morning, as we kind of bring this part of Jesus' ministry to a close, we're going to see a story, an example of how weakness leads to greatness. Of how weakness leads to greatness. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We'll be in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 29, we're coming to the end of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. In fact, when we pick up in February in Matthew chapter 21, we are going to be in Jerusalem. It will be the, the time of the passion as we come in through the triumphal entry, okay? So, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to Matthew chapter 20, we come to the conclusion of chapter 20, we're really going to drive home. Matthew is driving home on his landing point that he's been discussing for three chapters. And that is, what is true greatness? What is the definition of greatness? Remember, Jesus starts off by defining greatness by pointing us to a little child and saying, anyone who comes to me as a little child, this is the picture of greatness in the kingdom. That in the kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. Those who build themselves up in prominence, prominence and those who build themselves up in status will be lowered in humility before me in the kingdom. But those who walk in humility, those in fact who walk in weakness, will be exalted and elevated and honored in the kingdom of God, for great in the kingdom of God is a man willing to acknowledge his weakness. And so as we come into the end of Matthew chapter 20, Matthew is going to drive this point home by showing us the prototype of Christian greatness, greatness, Jesus himself. He's going to drive this home by pointing us to the life of Jesus Christ, the example of Jesus Christ, by telling us one of the stories among many. I find it interesting that, that Matthew chose this particular story because it's a remarkable story, sure, but within the ministry of Jesus, it's really pretty normal. It's really pretty normal. 
you got to remember, in the ministry of Jesus, he would come into a town and literally the entire town would bring him all of their sick, all of their disabled, all of those that were unwell. And as many as they brought would go back well. So for a blind man to regain his sight in the ministry of Jesus was something that was remarkably common. But this, this particular instance stood out to him. This particular instance was one that, that was obviously a marker in the minds of the disciples because we see it recorded not only by Matthew but also by Mark and by Luke. And it stood out to them because of the context, I think, in which it was given. Here it is. Matt, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about, about greatness. Here it is. The, the two of, of Jesus' inner circle, James and John, have just come to him and they have asked him if they can sit at his right hand and in, 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 at his left hand seeking Positions of status and prominence in the kingdom. And it's in this setting that we have two lowly, blind, destitute beggars just begging and pleading with Jesus for mercy. It says that they come into Jericho. Jericho was a wealthy city about a day's journey, 15 miles outside of Israel. Now, this is not the Jericho of Joshua. That one was destroyed. We know that, right? Those ruins still exist. This Jericho is about a mile above the original Jericho, and this Jericho still stands today. And so they come into Jericho, and as they are coming into Jericho, they come upon two blind men who were shouting. Now, no doubt these men had, had, uh, had heard the stories of Jesus and knew the deal with Jesus. They knew that Jesus was to be a great man of God, that he was exceptional and unique. And there was a great crowd that was following Jesus, thronging upon him. And as the crowd came, they couldn't see where Jesus was in the crowd. But as the crowd pressed on, they could hear the name Jesus coming up, understanding whose presence they were in. And so not knowing whether or not Jesus was in earshot or not, they began to shout out, Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now I want you to think about what they were asking for Jesus. I want, I want you to think about what it is that they were saying to him because it's critical to what Matthew is teaching us here. They cry out, and they're not asking, Lord, let us see. They're not asking, Lord, give us what we deserve. They're not saying, Lord, finally give us a fair deck. Our deck's been a few cards short this life. They're not coming to Jesus with entitlement. They're not even coming to Jesus asking to see. They're saying, Jesus, give us your mercy. Let us know your mercy. Now, what does it take for a man to ask for mercy? To ask for mercy is an admission of weakness, isn't it? To ask for mercy is an admission of weakness. It is to say that I am not strong enough in and of myself. To ask for mercy is to say, if you don't help me, I'm going to fail. To ask for mercy is to say that if you don't come through for me, I'm going to fall flat. I am at your mercy. I am too weak. I am insufficient. The only hope I have is that you will buttress me with your strength. See, these men were aware of their weakness. They were well acquainted with exactly how weak they are. These men knew because these men, it says, if you'll, if you'll look at the very last verse of Matthew 20, it says that they recovered their sight, right? 
So I think that what that teaches us is that at one point in their life they could see, and now they can't see. Their sight had been recovered. So in, the, in their lives, they had watched the sun descend behind the Palestinian hills. They had watched the Sea of Galilee glisten and the fresh catch come upon the shore. They had seen the faces of people that they loved. They knew what they were missing. It's very likely that at some point in their lives, they had livelihoods and jobs and careers. They would have had ambitions just like you and I, hoping perhaps to give their family a a better state than what they were handed, a, a better life than the one that they had growing up. But then somewhere along the line, they couldn't see anymore. They lost their vision. And in this day, in a day in which medicine was practically zero, it could be virtually anything that brought this on in their lives. So here they were, people who once could see, people who once perhaps had jobs, and now they were there and they they were completely limited to nothing but begging. They were at people's mercy. The only thing, the only hope that they had was that they could ask for people and people would drop some money in their coffer or hand them some bread out of their mercy, out of their generosity. And that was how they were sustained day to day. And you have to know that in Jesus' day, it would have been believed by every person in that crowd, very likely the two blind men themselves, that their blindness was the result of grave sin in their lives. That it was the wrath of God, the judgment of God, that their blindness was apparent, that God had shown disfavor and disapproval of them, and so had stricken them blind in response and in consequence to some of their sin. So if you think about these men, these men aren't just destitute. These men aren't just poor. These men aren't just hungry. These men are living lives of public shame and of private embarrassment, private guilt. You can imagine, all over and over in their minds, asking the question that I've heard so many people ask over the course of my ministry. What did I do to deserve this? What was it, God? What was it that I I did that brought this judgment into my life? What was it that I did that made it so that I can't even provide for myself? What is it that I did that cost me my entire dignity so that I am left merely for begging? And so they cry out. They cry out with everything that they have. They cry out again and again in repetition, O Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. O Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They might as well have been crying out, I am weak. I am weak. I have no hope. I have no chance. I have no food. I have no livelihood. I have no future. I need you, Jesus. See, they knew they weren't just calling out on a miracle worker like the crowd did. They knew they weren't just calling out on some some Johnny-come-lately miracle worker. They called him by his messianic name, Son of David. This is the one Isaiah 9 speaks of. This is the wonderful counselor. This is the everlasting God. This is the Prince of Peace. This is him. And so I'm calling out to him that I may know his mercy. And how did the crowd respond? Rebuke. The crowd loathes them. 
The crowd sees them as an inconvenience or at, at worst an annoyance or at best an annoyance. And, and they begin to rebuke them. Be quiet. Hush. Do you not know who this is? Do you not know what he's doing? This man is going to take the throne of David. This man is going to reestablish Israel as a world power. Be quiet, you beggar. We don't have time for you. You see, weakness makes you worthless in the world, doesn't it? Weakness makes you worthless in the world. The reason that most of us spend our entire lives trying to figure out how we can appear strong, how we can win the competition, how we can be in first place on the podium that's in our minds, is that we need to realize and we need to know that we aren't worthless. We need to believe with all of our hearts that there is some value, that there is some purpose to us. Because what we know is that if we show ourselves to be vulnerable, if we show ourselves to be anxious like Andrew talked about and apparently talked about in Alan's class this morning, if we show ourselves to not have all of the answers, if we show ourselves to be in need of somebody else's help, then we're worthless. We're just a drain. See, people in the world are commodities. They're commodities. They're a means to an end. You want people in your life, if you're living according to the ethics of the world, you want people in your life that will help you achieve what you aim to achieve. You need people in your life to help you achieve the ambition that you set before yourself. You know the, the conflict that a lot of people have with their parents is that they don't believe that their parents position them properly for success. It's not that they weren't loved. It's not that they weren't cared for. It's not that they weren't provided for. It's that they believe that their parents didn't help them achieve their ambition. And so they're dead to them. See, people are commodities in the world. And because people are commodities, if there's somebody in our lives that we believe are takers and not givers, and they have nothing that they can offer us, and they can, we can only be those that give to them and, and, and help them and benefit them and demonstrate generosity to them, then they become disposable to us. And so the greatest fear that a lot of people live with is that, will I become disposable to those around me? Will I become disposable to my husband? Will I become disposable to my employer? Will I become disposable to my church? Will I become disposable to my friends? In other words, will they see me as a drain because I'm so weak, and seeing me as a drain, will they begin to cut me out of the circle? You know, this is why, this is probably the primary driver behind abortion, isn't it? Isn't this probably the primary driver behind abortion? Because these little creatures, woven together by the hands of God, they can't tell you thank you. They, 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 can't, they can't give you stuff. They can't help you achieve your career ambitions. No, they, they require constant care. They only take. They require you to wake up early. They, they require you to reroute your life. They require you to put down your ambitions. And so if we live according to the ethic of the world... They're disposable. They're disposable. Because they take, they don't give. They are commodities and they are obstacles for us, keeping us from where, they want, where we want to go. So their weakness makes them worthless. See it all the time in marriages. All the time in marriages. He just doesn't make me happy. I, I want to be happier than this. In other words... 
he's not helping me achieve my ambition in marriage. He's not helping me reach the status in marriage that I'm looking for. And so it's over. It's disposable. She's not giving me the things that I want. She's not giving me the stuff that I'm looking for. So I'm going to go and I'm going to find somebody else that perhaps can help me get the stuff that I'm looking for. Help me achieve the, the sense of purpose and the sense of satisfaction that I want. In other words, she's dead to me because she did not meet her. She did not fulfill her need, her duty. She did not fulfill what I was entitled to do from her. So now I'm going to go find a new commodity. I'm going to go find an, a, 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 a mistress and then... Maybe she will come through for me in the clutch. In other words, these people are disposable until I ultimately get what I want. Weakness makes you worthless in the world. But you know what? Weakness is the currency of sinners in the kingdom of God. Weakness makes you worthless in the world, but weakness gives you the opportunity for greatness in the kingdom of God. Remember, there's a comparison in Matthew's mind here. A two-for-two two comparison. Just before this, in our text, you have James and John, and they've come to Jesus with, with Marie Baron. Remember that? Mama, a little bit too involved in his life. And she comes up, hey, my boys, they want to beat the right hand and the left hand. Can't you just help them out, man? And Jesus is like, taken aback. Are you serious? Those who want to be first will be last in the kingdom. And then what the story is immediately follows Two blind, destitute beggars on the side of the road, crying out, Lord, Lord, we don't, you don't owe us a thing. Lord, you don't have to give us anything. Lord, we aren't deserving of any of your grace, of any of your kindness. Would you just let us know just an ounce of your mercy? So what is Matthew saying? This is greatness. This is greatness. When the sinner comes to the end of himself, when the man or the woman realizes themselves to be insufficient, when the man or the woman realizes themselves to be inadequate, when the man or the woman realizes themselves to be too weak, and so they lower themselves in their own eyes and cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Greatness. See, the admission of weakness invites the mercy of God into your life. It is the currency of sinners in the kingdom of God. It, is, it invites the mercy, the outpouring of God's mercy into your life. Because how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Jesus looks back to them. And he or Jesus, these men are crying out, and the crowd is pressing on, and they're rebuking. That as they rebuke the men, they cry out all the more. And how does Jesus respond? He stops what he's doing. And he says, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? What is it that you need for me to do for you? So the crowd rejects them because of their weakness, and Jesus receives them because of their weakness. Do you see the difference? The crowd rejects them because of their weakness. Jesus receives them because of their weakness. See, it's flipping the whole ethic of the world. It's flipping the way that you see yourself and the way that you understand the kingdom of God and the way that you understand other people. It's flipping it upside down so that you see it completely opposite every way that you've always been trained to do. You know what? This morning, there are some of you and you are trying to live on your own strength. 
You're, you're trying to figure this thing out. You're trying to prove to your wife. You're trying to prove to your husband. You're trying to prove to your buddies. You're trying to prove to the 14-year-old to the sitting beside you that you're strong enough and that you're man enough and that you're tough enough. But the truth of, matter, of the matter is, is you're unraveling inside. Because the most difficult thing for a man or a woman to do is to admit weakness. You go to any Alcoholic Anonymous meeting. What is the most difficult thing to get an alcoholic to do? To admit that they're an alcoholic. You go and talk with somebody that's addicted to pornography. And what is the most difficult thing for someone who's addicted to pornography to say? I'm addicted to pornography. The most difficult thing, the greatest difficulty in the human life is to admit we don't have it figured out once and for all. Maybe we know it for some time, and right now your heart's pounding and you feel like you're unraveling inside, but on the outside you're smiling, your teeth are straight, your makeup's just right, your muscles are like you like them, and to the world you look like you're chiseled out of stone, but on the inside you're melting and you're terrified and unraveling at the seams. It's the hardest thing in the world for a teenage boy to admit in front of God and everybody else, all the guys that are in their class that are trying to prove how strong and bad they are, that they really are scared and don't know the purpose of life. And don't understand where they're headed, don't understand what they're doing. And that they know they don't have it figured out. The most difficult thing for an insecure junior high girl to do is admit that she really is afraid of the future. To admit that she really doesn't know who she is or understand her identity. But for everybody else, they have to believe that she's confident. And they have to believe that she's tough. And they have to believe that she's just figured all this thing out and able to laugh off all the stuff that she hears. The most difficult thing to do for a young mom or a young dad is to acknowledge that they don't have the answers. To acknowledge that they can't figure it out. To acknowledge that even though they're working harder and harder and harder and getting up earlier and being more organized and being more disciplined, that no matter what they do or how hard they try, they still feel like they're suffocating. The most difficult thing for an older man to do, though the, the patriarch of the family, the one to whom everybody else looks to for strength, the one to whom everybody else looks to for answers, for him to finally say, man, I'm not strong enough, I need Jesus. The hardest thing for you to do is to admit your weakness, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something, young man, young woman, older man, young mom, young dad. If you will humble yourself, if you will acknowledge your weakness, if you will embrace your inadequacy and embrace your insufficiency, then you are inviting the mercy of God into your life. Don't suffocate another day. Hear that from somebody that loves you. Hear that from somebody that loves you. Maybe you come in every single week, but you've just never really given Jesus the time of day because you just couldn't go up. You couldn't do that thing. You couldn't, you couldn't be that guy. Do you want to be great here or great in the kingdom of God? 
You want to walk in fear? Do you want to walk in, 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 in trepidation? Do you want to live in anxiety? Or do you want to walk in contentment and in peace and in joy? What do you want? Can I just plead with you for a second? Admit your weakness. Profess your sin. Come before the Lord and know the mercy of the risen Christ. But you know, as Christians, we're oxymorons a lot of the time, aren't we? But so you see, to be a Christian is to acknowledge that you are weak. If you, do, if you refuse to acknowledge that you are weak, if you have never come to the place in your life where you've been willing to, to say, hey, I'm weak, I don't have all the answers, I don't have it figured out, I need help, then you're not a Christian. Like, to be a Christian is to lay down yourself, lay down your ability to be good enough, lay down your ability to measure up and say, hey, Jesus, you're going to have to do all the work for me because I'm just that weak. But even in light of that, us being Christians and knowing that we don't have all of the answers, us being Christians and knowing we can't figure it all out, what do we typically do? We are people who know that we are weak and yet still try to live as though we are strong, aren't we? We are people that know that we are weak and yet we still live, try to live as though we are strong. If you don't believe me, look at your prayer life. If you don't believe me, look at your prayer life. And I was telling somebody um, in a conversation about this this past week, do you know why we have so much difficulty asking somebody else to pray for us? It's because we don't want to be that guy, right? We don't want to be that guy. We don't want to be that guy that's always the one, hey, I'm going to need you to pray for me again, still struggling, still needing help. Like, we don't want to be that burden, right? Like, we don't want everybody to roll their eyes when we start talking about our prayer requests. All right, what's Cody got going on now? Like, what great travesties happening in his life now? And the reason that we don't want to be that guy is because mentally, secretly, in the private altar of our hearts, we are judging that guy. We are judging that guy. And what we're saying in our minds in self-righteous judgment is, can't you just toughen up a little bit? Can't you just be stronger? Can't you just be, pick yourself up a little bit? Can't you just not burden everybody else with all of your problems? In other words, we become the crowd rebuking the blind beggars. Saying, hush, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Hush, the people of God have more important things to do. And all the while, Jesus is saying, no, come to me, pray for me, seek some help, and I will stop and pour my mercy into your life. Why don't we ask others to pray for us? Because it causes us to lay down our dignity. It causes us to have to be humble and say, hey, I need help here. Not, not just asking people to pray, but do you pray in general? Here's what I find true. Most of the time, we pray when life gets the hardest. When our kids rebel, when our marriage is coming apart, that's when we pray. And man, in those days, we will try everything that we've got. We will try counseling. We will try this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And none of that works. And so then we're just reserved. God, all I can do is pray, and I need your intervention. And let me tell you, you should do that. But why is it that we don't pray the rest of the time? When times are good, when your bank account's not at zero, when, when, when your kids aren't rebelling, when your marriage is generally pretty happy, why do you struggle to pray then? It's because in those moments you're saying, you know what, God, I'm strong enough to get, handle this one. I, I've got it from here. 
Prayer is the ongoing admission of weakness in the Christian life. And so as prayer is the ongoing admission of weakness in the Christian life, prayer is at the very same time the ongoing conduit for mercy in the Christian life. You go to God day in and day out, and you say, God, I can't do it today either. And God, I need your mercy today too. God, let me have mercy. And God, whose mercies are new every single morning, pours them out over you. So brothers and sisters, when times are tough, pray. Pray. Man, when, when your marriage is struggling, pray. When your parenting is struggling, pray. When your family is unraveling, pray. When things aren't good at work, pray. When you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, pray. But when things are good, when life is fun, when your kids are, are obeying, man, pray. You need the mercy of God then. Man, when, when your marriage is, 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 is happy and delightful and you're excited to come home, pray. Pray because you are so weak, you're any second away from messing that up. Pray. Pray that you might know the mercies of God intimately in your life. The most incredible part of this story is that it says Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. Read it with me. Verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you mean? What do you want me to do for you? You realize where Jesus is. No longer are we measuring his crucifixion as being in weeks or months away. Now we're down to hours. Jesus is the epitome of being a busy and important man. Crowds of people have come to him. His, he's got his, a lot on his mind, things racing. The, the cross is ahead. His, 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 uh, his scourging is ahead. His betrayal of his disciples is ahead. The Mount of Olives where he's going to sweat great drops of blood. All of that is ahead. His heart is heavy. He's going to be betrayed by his own people. He knows all of this is coming. He is busy. He is, he is heavy laden. And in the midst of that, what does Jesus do? He stops for two blind beggars. He stops everything that he's doing for the sake of two people that can do nothing for him. Brothers and sisters, do you understand Jesus is great? Jesus is great. Jesus is not great because he has a great crowd following him. Jesus is not great because people were impressed with him and wanted him to be the king of Israel. Jesus is not great because he has answers to all of the Pharisees' questions. No, Jesus is great because of who he is. Jesus is great because Jesus is a stopping savior. Jesus is great because he was surrounded in the throne of heaven by creatures you can't even imagine, constantly, perpetually singing his praises day in, day out, in all of eternal bliss, and yet he stopped and he came down here so that he could rescue a blind beggar like me. Jesus is great, not because he sought to be exalted, but because he emptied himself and was already exalted. Jesus is great because he walked down the streets of difficulty, down the path of mercy that sinners might be taken care of and delivered. And if you want to find greatness, you want to find greatness, the only way for a sinner to find greatness is on the pathway of mercy. To live a life like Jesus lived. To go where Jesus has went. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, when you come to Christ, he gives you mercy. And then you take that mercy and you pour out that mercy. And he yet gives you mercy again, blessing you with an ongoing fountain of mercy in your life. But you know what most Christians are? Stagnant ponds of mercy. The fountain pours into us, the mercy pools up around us, but it stagnates. It never transforms the world around us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be stagnant ponds of mercy. Let us be channels of mercy, that God pours mercy through us. We admit our weakness, receive his mercy so that others may know it, and others may get it, and others may experience it, and the cycle repeats itself. So when you go home with your babies today, be channels of mercy to your children. You've got rebellious grandchildren, be channels of mercy to them. You've got a, a difficult employer, be a channel of mercy to him. You got people you play on the basketball team with, be channels of mercy to your teammate. And being channels of mercy, being someone willing to admit that you are weak and in need of mercy and will then show, so demonstrate mercy, you will know greatness. You will know greatness. And you'll know it just in the same light as the prototype of greatness, Jesus himself. Church family, may we be great. Let us pray together.